Good morning. Uh, As we come to this Christmas season, uh, you'll be very aware it's one of the busiest of the year. Uh, For many, uh, people will be buying presents, wrapping presents, uh, preparing meals. Uh, There'll be in-laws to tolerate. But it's also a time of year where there is so much waiting. We're super busy, yet we're looking forward. We're waiting for what's coming. There may be an experience more familiar uh, with the days back in childhood. Um, you know, you're a young kid. Uh, you're waiting for what Santa's going to bring in the morning. I remember accidentally waking up at half four on Christmas morning. Couldn't get back to sleep because I was so excited with what I was going to get. And last year was a, a tough time. <laughs> and as we come to, to this passage we're doing today in Malachi... We come to to the people with the same attitude. There are people that for hundreds of years have been waiting, and they are still waiting expectantly for what is to come. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'd I'd encourage you to turn to Malachi 3. Uh, If you have one of the church Bibles, it's page 802, uh, but the words should appear on the screen as well. (coughs) Uh, We're going to read Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4. It says this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. As Malachi is saying this uh, to the Israelites, um, they're in one of the the better places they've been in their history. Uh, As they've returned home after about 100, well, since about 100 years ago, Previously, they'd been in exile uh, in Babylon for about 70 years. Uh, It was a really tough time. And for them, it was more than just being away from home. It felt like they were away from God there. The place that they had previously lived in Israel, uh, that was God's place for them. That was the promised land. And so coming home is, is incredible news. To be home means they are a prosperous nation. They can live under God. Yet though they are in the land God has promised them, they seem to be in the wilderness more than ever. Because though they are home, their relationship with God has completely gone to pot. It has become awful. So before these verses we read, uh, we read in chapter 1 that the Lord will not accept an offering from their hands. Now offerings were so important to them, that was central to their worship To their communion with God, the offerings they gave were were a really key part. In chapter 2, God goes on to say that he will spread dung on their faces and dung on their offerings. And so the people of Israel are comfortable in that they are where they're meant to be. For the first time in a long time, no nation is trying to conquer them. Life seems to be going pretty right. But there's one big thing missing. Their relationship with God is fundamentally broken. And so they are lost in the wilderness. They are waiting for hope. 
And that wilderness feeling, I suspect, if you're anything like me, is something we're relatively familiar with. You know, you're doing decent Christian things. You're still doing what you're meant to do. You've signed up to about 10 rotors in church. You're attending all the time. You're praying. You're reading your Bible. You're doing all the good stuff. And life could be decent too. Family's going well. Work's going well. The Christmas presents will be really nice this year. And yet there is a relationship with God that feels dry and broken and lifeless. And perhaps it hadn't always been this way. You, know, you did feel a closeness with God. There was a real intimacy with God there. And you remember it fondly. Even the harder times of life, when that relationship with God was correct, the harder times seemed to be okay. And to get out of the wilderness, you've prayed, uh, you've asked, you've sought the Lord, but nothing seems to happen. And so you wonder, where will hope come from? And it's to the Israelites in that situation, and to us in that situation, that these beautiful words come. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, say the Lord of hosts. Such news. This is literally water to people stuck in the desert. Hope is coming. This first messenger uh, that Malachi talks of uh, is not Jesus. This is John the Baptist. Uh, So John the Baptist who would come to prepare the way for Jesus coming. And in fact, uh, we read that John the Baptist, uh, he hears the word of God in the desert. It is from the wilderness he comes, from that place of death and loneliness. He comes to prepare the way uh, for one who is greater to come. He calls the people to repent, to be ready for Jesus' coming. And after he speaks to John the Baptist, Malachi moves on to the main event. The Israelites were kind of excited to hear about John the Baptist, but they're really keen to hear about the Messiah. This chosen one of God, the one of God who would come and save the people. For generation after generation after generation, over hundreds of years, the overarching hope the overarching thing the Israelites were waiting for was the Messiah to come. And so there's no better news for them to hear than the hope of the Messiah. You can imagine uh, our people looking relatively distraught, lifeless, but when they hear of the Messiah coming, a huge smile beams across their face. Surely this promised one who comes, he'll fix their relationship with God. Surely this promised one will give them their intimacy with God back. Surely he will make God accept their offerings, their worship. Surely hope will be restored. But then verse 2 comes. And verse 2 hits them like a car crash. Who can endure? Who can stand? And they're thinking, what? Verse 1 was such good news. It brought so much hope. And verse 2 brings them right down to earth. Surely they would have thought the Messiah is coming and he'll be nicey-nicey and he'll fix everything for us. But the root of the Israelites' flailing faith was not not a problem with God on any part. It was a problem with their hearts. And God was not rejecting their offerings to make a point. He wasn't rejecting their offerings uh, just to be stubborn. And God said that he would, 
God rejected their offerings because their offerings, their worship of him was garbage. Utter, utter trash. God said that he would spread dung on their offerings and on their faces. And to be real, the dung might have made it smell a bit nicer. It might have made it better. What they were offering to God was abysmal. And God gives two reasons uh, why that's the case. Uh, so the first, uh, so they were commanded to offer to God good animals, you know, firstborns, healthy animals. Yet in their place, as we read earlier in Malachi, they offer uh, blind animals, lame animals, sick animals. God had given them so much, he had restored them as a people, and yet they gave him less than nothing. Those animals, they had literally no use for. If they, were, they were just going to throw them in the bin. Instead of putting them in the trash, they offer them to God as worship. One of my proudest moments of being a student for over four years, well, just four years, um, was that I managed to only hoover once in my whole time. Now, for some, that isn't a proud moment. Uh, and if my mom listens back to the podcast, it'll be a, a bad moment for me too. But I was proud to survive throughout uni, only hoovering once. But what I found when I moved out of my university flat uh, was a a little bit scary. Uh, There had been food on the floor uh, that... So I moved out in June. That had been there since September of the previous year. And so when I tried to pick it up to leave, it was very stinky, and there might have been little gross bits hanging off it. And it was the most disgusting thing I'd probably ever seen or picked up. But that's exactly what the Israelites are basically offering to God. The very worst thing they could could have, they're saying, God, this is for you. Now, if I brought that food in, it's probably still alive, to be fair, and offered it to you, you'd be very offended. We probably wouldn't be friends. But yet to offer that to God, that just sounds crazy. But it's what they did. Their worship, too, was was disgusting uh, because they had married people from other gods, people who who worshipped other gods, people from other nations. And so rather than uh, give all the glory to God alone, they would give God a little bit, but they'd share it out across other gods. They wouldn't say, uh, I have no other gods before God. They'd say, I have many gods, and God can be one of them. And and for us, we, we can look back and we say, we can't believe they'd do that. That's crazy. How could they treat God so badly? But I think when we think a bit deeper, uh, we see where we've given God the scraps of our lives too. When during our day, when God has given us the breath that we breathe, where his mercies are new every morning, and God isn't a thought until we go to bed again. Or when we make our family budget and the last line is about giving to church when we map out what we've got to do in the week uh, and the thought of going to something or sharing the good news of Jesus just seems to be the lowest priority. Or when we come, we we sing praises to God, yet inside we're just wishing that the service would hurry up and end. And I fear too that we often look back at the Old Testament people and we think, flip, they had to do so much to maintain their relationship with God. God expected so much. They had to, to, you know, get all these animals, their best animals, and sacrifice them. That's so much effort. But the New Testament picture 
actually goes far further than that. The picture for us is a lot, it requires a lot more commitment than a few animals. It requires our whole lives. Romans 12, 1 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. Your bodies, as in that is all of you, uh, your mind, your soul, uh, the things you own, uh, your body, as a living sacrifice to God. This is our true and proper worship. And so God's demands of us, if we are to worship him, are huge. Our whole lives. And I hope when we, when we think on that, it wouldn't take us too long uh, to realize that that's something we're not capable to do. That's something we're not going to measure up in. Sure, for a while, uh, we may you know, say to God, oh, I give you everything. But a couple of hours later, it's, it's just a distant thought. And our lives wouldn't show that we've done that. We can't live up to the standard of giving everything to the Lord. And that is the very root of sin, Sin is when we serve ourselves rather than serve God. And so the root of sin is when we say, well, I'm not going to give God all of this. I'll keep some for me. I'll honor myself instead. And if that's the place we find ourselves, then verse 2 hits us hard. Who can endure? Who can stand? And the answer is surely not us. And so if we're in the wilderness, it seems like we're stuck there. There's no way to get out. But, and it's a pretty big but, there is hope. The passage doesn't end there. The Lord is coming. End of verse 2 says, The Lord will come like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. As the refiner's fire, uh, how it works is it melts the ore, and in doing that, it separates the gold or the silver, like the good stuff, from the dross, the bad stuff. And so the bad stuff is thrown away, it's discarded, but the good stuff, the gold, can be seen for what it is meant to be. It is beautiful, and it can be made to, to to really show what it is made for. It can be fashioned into something absolutely wonderful. The fuller's soap, kind of similarly, uh, so it removes the stains from a cloth and it makes the cloth clean. That is what Malachi promised the Lord will do. He will come to cleanse his people of all impurity, of all blemish. He would come to cleanse us from our sin. And there is great news, there is bad news there. So it's great news for the gold and the silver. They get to flourish. They get to be everything they were designed to be but the dross is discarded. And so where do we find ourselves in that? Surely, uh, as we thought, we we don't measure up. Surely we would be in the discard pile. But we aren't. Because there is hope. And the hope is that the Lord came. The hope is that, the, is that Jesus Christ, he stepped down from heaven, he took on flesh, he died a gruesome death, and he rose again. And that death, it takes the punishment for sin, but also more, it gives us his righteousness. The Israelites weren't offering in righteousness at all. They were offering uh, 
with the very worst they had. But God, in his grace, gives us his righteousness. We who have offered God our very worst receive God's very best. And this greatest gift, this gift of Jesus' righteousness, that perfection changes everything. So we still sin, but our sin is counted against Jesus and not against us. And so as we come to to worship God, as we come to offer ourselves to him, we're not boldly approaching uh, based on how good we are. We're not doing it based on how much of our lives we have previously surrendered to him. Our very right uh, to come to God is on the perfect offering of Jesus, the Jesus sacrificed on the cross and the perfect righteousness he gives us. And so then when we read verse 2 again, the picture changes. Who can stand, who can endure, it gets a different answer. Rather than hide away sheepishly, we can stick our hands up and say, I will. The question naturally comes back, how? And there is just one way. The way is to be sheltered under the righteousness of Jesus. So you might know the Passover story. Uh, The Israelites were to put up the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so the angel of the Lord would pass by them. They were sheltered under that blood. And it's exactly the same story. We put up the blood of Jesus. uh, We hold that up and say, this covers me. This is why I can stand. This is why I can endure. And only by coming to Christ and surrendering ourselves to him do we get the privilege or can we really worship God. And this this privilege, this right to worship God because of Jesus' righteousness he gives to us, it is a permanent standing. There's no sense of a, a trial basis where um, we get to you know, worship God for a few months, uh, then we have to become the perfect Christian if we want to keep going. It's not a loan of righteousness that we have to pay back when we earn enough for ourselves. This gift of righteousness is a permanent gift that lasts as long as God is on his throne, as long as Jesus is risen from the dead, and it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's really nice to sing, He shall reign forevermore. Uh, and as we sing that, uh, that is a, it's an eternal promise. And the truth of that means uh, that we can come to God at any time, that we stand uh, before God because he has given us the right, the authority to do so. This gift, too importantly, this is 100% righteousness that he gives us. This is not just a little bit to top up what we already have. It doesn't waver, it doesn't flicker, it doesn't go up or down. And so as we come to sing on a Sunday morning, and potentially the night before has been pretty rough, we're really glad that the rest of the church doesn't quite know what we did. We can still sing with full gusto, we can still sing boldly, we can still approach boldly, because we come based on the 100% righteousness that Jesus has given us. When we sin again and again, and we just don't seem to be getting out of it, we can come to God in worship, we can come to God in prayer, 
exactly the same as if we're doing really well. Because we come based on Jesus' righteousness. You can't take it down from 100 to 95%. You can't take it down. If God has given you that gift, he has sealed it himself. It is yours. And then it also works the other way. In that, let's say Saturday night was really good. Uh, We managed to feed all the homeless. We converted the masses. We had a fantastic time. We then have no more right uh, than anybody else in the room to sing praises to God. You can't get more than 100% righteousness. You can't be 110% righteous. The good things we do, they don't add to our status before God. Our status before God is based on one thing that never changes. The love of Jesus Christ as he died and rose again for us. And so the sinner, the saint, they all come together to worship God as equals. And so there is hope. Hope for those lost in the desert. There's hope for those whose faith just seems to be lacking. Hope for the sinner. And that hope is Jesus. That hope is the baby born 2,000 years ago to a poor couple in a stinky stable. That is the hope we celebrate at Christmas time. And so I'd just love to ask you that if you're feeling in the wilderness, if you're feeling like your faith is dry and broken, then just run to Jesus. Or if you've been searching for something, you don't really know what it is, but you know something's missing. I just ask you to run to Jesus. If you've never thought about him before, never given God a second uh, moment in your life, I'd ask you to run to Jesus. If you're sitting here and you have it all together and your faith is on fire and you absolutely love in life, please run to Jesus. He is not in the business of turning away. If Jesus only wanted you to kind of come to him, he wouldn't have stepped down from heaven and died a a criminal's death for us. He is desperate that at Christmas time, your heart really does prepare him room. He invites you to, to run to him. No matter if you're the most broken, sinful person on the planet. No matter if you're the best Christian in the world. We need the same grace, we have the same hope, and that hope is Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, it is truly a a great blessing that we come to you based on Jesus. Lord, if it all depended on us, we could sing one minute uh, and then cry the next. We would never be able to, to boldly come because we'd be so inconsistent. Lord, thank you that, that our faith is based on the finished work of Jesus. It is a hope that will never change and will never fail. Lord, help us to, to run to you always. Amen.